All right. So we're, we're continuing in our study in the book of Acts. So we're, we're back on track there. And as we look, we're going to look at an interesting character who makes his way on the scene. He's one of the more provocative, interesting, profound guys that we encounter in the book of Acts. And you wish you could even learn more about him. But we get this cameo appearance of him. Later on, he'll appear in Corinth in the letter to the Corinthians. His name is Apollos or Apollonius would be his full name. And and as we as we encounter him, we, we you know kind of get a sense that there's something that's kind of a big deal about this guy. Luke includes him for a reason. And, and later on, he is of such prominence, it seems, in the big church of Corinth that it, he's so compelling that people begin to say, I follow Apollos. Rather than even saying, I follow Jesus. Now, that's not on Apollos. Uh, that, that's on the, the followers that were kind of going after the cult of personality. And, and I'm sure he would have rejected that soundly, just as Paul does. But, but this is the guy that we're going to encounter right now. So, let's pray together, and then in we go to Acts chapter 18. God, thank you. Thank you that uh, here we are, back in our kind of everyday normal mode of fellowship and not just fellowship, but purposefulness too, that you've gathered us together as a people to be a city on a hill, a shining light, uh, but, but also to be a people that are making a difference and really being able to be the, the, the solution that, that you have for our community around us. Uh, help us to continue to be aware of that. Uh, help us to even be imitating of the humility of Apollos, the initiative of Priscilla and Aquila, uh, to, to always be looking to show everyone from the scriptures the truth about Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So uh, Dwayne uh, had, had brought us through the church in Corinth, and now we're going to make our way over uh, here into Acts chapter 18 uh, in verse 18. So here we go. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. This is the end of his second missionary journey that we're going to be looking at. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. So this is the, the couple that ended up being quite enthusiastic about the ministry of Jesus. And Paul gathered them in and continued to use them. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off in Centuria because of a vow he had taken. Now, Centuria is just simply the port city on the Aegean side of Corinth. Corinth bordered both the Adriatic and Aegean seas. If you look up in the very top left corner of that map, uh, you see Corinth, where we, where we left off. It's all part of southern Greece, the, the kind of the bottom Peloponnesian portion of, of Greece there. And, and uh, in Corinth, then uh, has a port city right near there, which was kind of the terminal that Paul would go to in order to catch a ship over to Ephesus. We'll see in a moment that he goes to Ephesus, but that's not his big ministry in Ephesus. Ephesus is his layover as he catches the next ship because his, his intended destination is to run by Jerusalem and then go home and go back to Antioch. Antioch is kind of Paul's home. Uh, Tarsus is right next to Antioch, and between those two, that would have been his home base. And it's where he launches each of his missionary journeys, typically from Antioch. And then you see after he gets to Antioch, he'll then launch off into the third of his missionary journeys. But here, here in Centuria, he has his hair cut, 
And you think, well, but Paul, didn't he have liberty in Christ? Isn't he the one who said, we don't have to follow the law? But liberty in Christ allows you to either just simply follow Christ, or if you choose to continue to, to follow the law, well, then you have the liberty to do that as well. And one of the stipulations of the law is that there was a vow that you could take that was a vow of gratitude, of, of magnificent thanksgiving. And part of it is that you would not cut your hair. Uh, but at the end of the vow, if God had fulfilled what it is that you were asking, then at the end of that, you would cut your hair, offer your hair to God. Some would do better than others in that. And, 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 and in doing so, be able to, in a sense, express, according to the Old Covenant, a thanksgiving through that, that gesture that you have there. And, and that's what many people think, is that it's the end of the second missionary journey. There are marvelous churches that have all been developed throughout Berea and Athens and Thessalonica and Philippi, uh, all throughout uh, Asia, the, the, the churches that we saw, you know, as we've read all the way through in, in Pisidium Antioch and Lystra and Derby. I mean, incredible, right? All of, all of the kind of the great work of the New Testament is, is seemingly done on that, on that second missionary journey. And so this expression of thanksgiving. All right, moving on. Uh, verse 19. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. So he gets off at the, the, at the terminal uh, and, and ready to move on, but, but they kind of un, uh, debark and stay there. He himself went into the synagogue in Ephesus and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. By the way, he does. Then he set sail from Ephesus. Now, it is interesting that Paul has an audience and they want to hear more about it. And yet, why is it that he doesn't then kind of make the most of that open field seemingly that's there? And I think he realizes that there's already an established work in Ephesus, a large and established work in Ephesus. His heart's desire was so dearly to launch the next missionary journey. And now that he was done, it was time to regroup, tell Jerusalem all that had been done, and then get back up to Antioch again, get his resources together one more time. And knowing that perhaps his time was short, his burning desire was that at many corners of the world could know Jesus, that he was going to make him known. It's a, it's a beautiful sentiment there. It's one that should convict us all that what am I doing with the days that I have to let as many corners of people that I will encounter, places that I could go, ways that I could even redirect myself today to help as many as possible know about Jesus. And we see that in Paul's heart here. Verse uh, 21. But as he left, he promised, if it's God's will, I'll be back. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. The up and down could confuse you as you look at this map. They're like, but he went down from Caesarea and up from Jerusalem. Whenever you're talking about Jerusalem, it's always up. And whenever you're going away from Jerusalem, it's always down. Even if where you're going is Mount Hermon and it's higher than Jerusalem, it's still down. The, the pinnacle of it all is Jerusalem. So whenever anybody's going up, they're typically going to Jerusalem. Whenever they're going down, they're going away from Jerusalem. Verse 23, he went down from Jerusalem, greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there 
and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So the beginning of this third missionary journey is Paul on a strengthening campaign of the places where he's already planted. Fortifications. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, here he comes, a native of Alexandria. He throws that in not for nothing. If you were to hear that as a, as a first century, you would think, oh, Alexandria. Alexandria is no mean city, as Paul will say about Tarsus, because the three big university cities of the first century were Athens, Tarsus, and Alexandria. So if you hailed from any of those places and it was made known in your name that you were, in, in fact, John from Tarsus, you would think, ah, that's a little smarty pants that we're, we're, we're referring to here. Uh, and, and for sure, Alexandria is the smarty pants central of it all. It was founded by Alexander the Great in 332 BC. It was founded with many, many slaves who were Jews. And of the five districts of Alexandria, fully two of them were, were pretty much all Jewish districts. The Jews also then kind of formed the, the center of the kind of the brain trust of, of Alexandria. And one of the things that happened in Alexandria dur during that period of time, around 250 BC, was the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. The Bible that is being read all through our New Testament is that Bible that was translated in Alexandria by that uh, academic pursuit. Uh, so, and, and not only that, but, but some of the uh, most influential schools of biblical interpretation rested in Alexandria. And thus, this guy, uh, this Apollos, a Jew, would have been schooled by nothing less but the, the greatest of all elites at that time. So, he was Apollos, a native of Alexandria, and he came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. We've got to keep it straight in our head that every time we hear scriptures in the New Testament, it's not talking about the New Testament. <laughs> scriptures means the Old Testament. You know, we're, we're yet to see the writings of the New Testament codified and ratified uh, into, uh, into a canon yet. So he came to Ephesus in, in, with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor. Uh, the word there is the idea of boiling over. Zeo is the, is the word there. Um, and it, it's also where we get the word zeal. Uh, so he was a man of immense zeal as he, as he taught. And it says that what he taught from the scriptures did point to Jesus accurately, though he only knew the baptism of John. And that's kind of an interesting kind of disconnect that he would know so much, but somehow he didn't get exposed to the New Testament teachings of Jesus or even really be introduced to him. Now, many say, well, yeah, but doesn't it say he taught about Jesus accurately? That just may be Luke's way of saying that he taught about the Messiah accurately, that the, the Christ who was to come, he had it on straight and all the scriptures of the Old Testament that he knew so well, he was saying these will be fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah which of course they were in Jesus. So he had everything ready to go and in place. He just needed to have Jesus injected into it uh, rather than just know about John the Baptist saying that Jesus is coming. 
And if you want to get ready for Jesus, well, you better repent and be baptized so that you will be able to appreciate the kingdom of God that's coming your way. So somehow he, he kind of knew all of that, but just had that little bit of a disconnect. Now, it wouldn't be very difficult for that. John had many disciples that also propagated the message of the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. The Messiah is about to be fulfilled. Look at all the scriptures of the Old Testament that are pointing to the fulfillment fact of the Messiah. It's about to happen even now. Messianic fever was going on everywhere uh, in Alexandria, up in Tarsus, down throughout Jerusalem and Judea, of course. So he, being a learned man, would have actually been one who would want to study all of that and would have really wanted to hear about what John was preaching since he was so renowned right there in Jerusalem. So, uh, but, but he only knew the baptism of John. And that's an interesting point. We'll look at that later. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue there in Ephesus. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they realized, wow, this guy is amazing. But all the while, you know, when you hear somebody amazing, but you realize they're off on a very important doctrinal point. So the Holy Spirit, I think, to Priscilla and Aquila had the wah, wah, wah alarm going off where they can't just say, well, isn't that nice that he's so good? No, they, they, they couldn't let their conscience just kind of be settled when there's a clear disconnect there. And so they take beautiful initiative and my goodness, intimidating initiative too. If this is kind of like the, the, the wisest man of the land, this celebrity that comes into your synagogue and is preaching accurately from the scriptures about the way the Messiah is going to be fulfilled. Well, that would be rather intimidating. And who are we? We're not, we're not from Alexandria. We're, we're, we're just kind of cosmopolitans from, from Rome. And we got kicked out of there and ended up on the run in Corinth. And we're, we're tent makers. We're making tents with that dude. And now all of a sudden, he, he puts us into this position where we're in a synagogue with the expert of all experts. Ah, all right, let's go for it, honey. And, you know, and, and off they do, which is so inspiring that, that Aquila and Priscilla do, do exactly that. Uh, and, and so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila heard him. I love what they did here. They invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, Achaia is the area where Corinth is. Uh, it's that region up, uh, up there. It's just spelled a little bit differently up on our map here. Uh, but, but Achaia is, is another way of saying Corinth. Just like Macedonia is another way of saying Philippi. Uh, it's, the, it's the area where they're located. Uh, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. Amen. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So he already knew that the Messiah was in all of these passages. He had all of those things ready to go. And then Priscilla and Aquila helped him to realize, oh, all this stuff that you're so excited about. By the way, it's all about Jesus. And, 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 and also John's baptism. Yeah, that was it. But Jesus has a little bit more to say even about that and about the Holy Spirit. Now, interestingly, we'll, we'll study this next week. But when he it, when Paul comes to Ephesus. There are also a whole bunch of followers of John the Baptist that he encounters. And when he encounters them, he asks them, hey, do you have the Holy Spirit? 
Because John's baptism wasn't a baptism of spirit. It was just simply water, not water and spirit. Uh, and, and they said, uh, Holy Spirit, we're, we're not even like, you know, understanding what you're talking about. And the very first thing that Paul says to them is, well, then, then why did you get baptized? Why did you get baptized? That's the very first thing he says when they don't get it with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and I think some of this is going to come into play here as we take a look. But let's, let's go ahead and jump in to kind of the heart of this message here. I've got two points. The first is the zeal of a husband and wife. This is so inspiring. It should be so inspiring for all of us that two ordinary tent makers could actually be used by God to disrupt the greatest expert in scripture that they will ever encounter in their lives. Or perhaps anybody in all of Ephesus will ever encounter. Ephesus, a magnificently large city, one of the three biggest cities of the, of the entire empire, that here he comes into one of the most influential synagogues and as they're sitting there as husband and wife, right? Probably a major, large synagogue. And, and as they hear him speaking, and they're looking around at this big crowd, I think Priscilla and Aquila are probably saying to each other, like, do you think somebody else is going to kind of go up there and talk to him about this? Are, are we the only ones that, like, oh man, you think, I mean, us of all people? Do you really think it should be us uh, that's here? Well, Paul apparently felt like we should stay here. Uh, maybe it was for such a time as this. But, but I love that they didn't decide somebody else has got it. Right? The Holy Spirit is convicting me, so I got it. I wish I didn't, but I got it. And there will be people that God puts in your path that will say typical things that sound rather insightful. That, you know, well, yeah, God is nice and all, but I think the important thing is just to be a good person. Isn't that really all that really matters? Is just to, just to be a good person. And, and as you're there, if you're sensitive enough at the moment and not distracted enough, you probably have the same Holy Spirit ah, 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 alarm going off. But do you ignore it? Or do you realize, whoa, there is a reason that I am absolutely disturbed in my soul right now. Because the Holy Spirit who resides within me, the Holy Spirit who gives me wisdom from above, not just my own best guess on things, the Holy Spirit within me is agitating me to realize that I need to be a disrupting force to help this person know the way of God, as it says here, more adequately. This is going to happen to us all time and time again. Let us not leave this passage of Scripture, which is meant to be a... a astounding, inspiring passage for us to see two tent-making, husband and wife tent-makers to be able to make such a massive difference. You will have professors and teachers and those that you perceive to be above you in some sort of social strata in a variety of ways, again and again and again. And every time that you do, my goodness, please, 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 don't just shut off the work of the Holy Spirit that is, that is trying to tell you the way of God more adequately, the way of God more adequately. Now, the zeal that, that then burns inside of you shouldn't come out with Priscilla and Aquila in the middle of the synagogue saying, heresy! Right? And they, they mentioned Priscilla first, so you know if that went down, I, I think Aquila, who's the husband, would be, uh, honey, um... 
Let's try a different approach. But, but their zeal is channeled through love. And zeal is often a way of describing love, by the way. The zealous love of the Lord, the jealous love of the Lord, it's the same word. And, and realizing that this zeal is not just meant to have a public display. This zeal is meant to be power under control. Humility, meekness, that is meant to be channeled. And what do they do? They don't stand up and condemn him in the middle of his uh, speech in the synagogue. Uh, instead, they wait till he's done. Pull him aside, say, you know what? We would love to have you over to our home. Come on over. Maybe we can really have just a great salty discussion around the word of the Lord. And, and sometimes it's, it's you know, probably important to recognize that if someone is so well-trained and adept and learned that it, it probably requires relationship. Not just kind of a, a going after it with idea versus idea, because most people that have kind of trained in, in that pursuit have spent a lot of time debating ideas back and forth. Just as Apollos had already, he's going to go down the road and start doing that over in Corinth, where he debates the Jews publicly. Um, so certainly if, it, if they led with a debate, I think he would have parried with a debate at that same moment. Uh, but, but instead, they led with love. They let their zeal well up in love. Now, how about for us right now? Who is it that even you think in the most recent episodes of you having interaction with some folks that God has put in your path, who is it that you realize, you know what, I, I recognize pretty clearly, even though they seem to be zealous about a lot of stuff and even though they seem to be pursuing, that they need to know the way of God more adequately. Are you just letting that sit right now? Let's not go past the Holy Spirit conviction of Scripture and let things like that sit. I would, I would go so far, write it down. If you're here with your, your spouse, well, confer together. You know, who, who is it? Who is it that we need to show the way of God more adequately to? Who is it that we need to have over to our home? Who is it that we need to love in the way that God really wants us to love? Who is it that God is giving us to love? Well, then let's love them. Let's love them with the zeal that Priscilla and Aquila loved Apollos with and realize, hey, if they could be used with Apollos, certainly we could be used with you know, the, the, the fellow that lives down the block. Um, please, please don't, don't uh, let, let this go by. But now it's not just the zeal of a husband and wife uh, that, that is in view here, but it's also the humility of an all-star. The humility of an expert of experts. I mean, this is the dean of the of the school of the academy, and the beautiful thing here is that he has a humility about him that allows two tent makers to explain the scriptures to him in a way that shows him the way of God more adequately. This is this is an inspiring thing, and by the way, over and over again where there are very learned people like Pharisees and they're proud, well then yes, Jesus brings it. But wherever there's humility, no matter what the person's status is in life, wherever there's humility, there is a perseverance on the part of Jesus and his disciples to help that person come all the way to the destination to which they had been always meant to arrive. 
And that is that a full understanding and salvation that is found in Jesus Christ alone. And, and for us, it's God forbid we ever get to a place where people can't talk to us. Because we know a thing or two about raising kids or being a spouse or leading a Bible talk or participating in the church. Holy smokes, God forbid that, that that ever even gets to anywhere near any of us right now. One of the, the, the fellows that's here that inspires me so much is George Lamboris. You know, it was um, a few years back when George began to study the Bible and you know, a few of us would meet with him at lunch, and it was always quite encouraging. But, but George was no ordinary seeker. Uh, George was the most well-read person that you'll ever encounter. But again, he's, he's so humble that he's not even letting you know that. He had read through all of the early church writings. He had read through the, the, the Bible quite thoroughly. He had read commentaries. He had read ancient commentaries. Right? He, he understood all of this. And so it was a little bit intimidating as we would... You kind of sit and begin to study the Bible together. And on top of that, his last name is Limboris. So he knows Greek. Like, not like, oh, I, you know, took an online course in Greek. No, I grew up Greek and, and, and could read the, the scriptures, uh, which, were, you know, Koine Greek is still accessible to, to him in that. Uh, but, but the beauty of it is, is as, as we really did unfold passages before George, the humility that he had really probably caused more goosebumps on us than, than perhaps even him as he read those same scriptures. To realize, wow, we are in a, 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 a setting where a seeker with, with, with such an intensibility is nonetheless embracing the beauty of all of this. Uh, but even for, for all of us now, there might be things that are coming at us from scripture, from the community, from the Holy Spirit. And are we too far along to learn? You know, I, I love this passage because Apollos was no young buck here. Uh, neuroplastic, neuroplasticity is alive and well. Right? We can all continue to learn. We continue to grow. And you know, even, even now, I've, I've been getting a challenge. And it's it's been very difficult to respond always with humility than pride. But... But, you know, Clay and some of the other brothers have, have really kind of helped me to say, you know, as you lead, if you always lead with zeal and strength, you're going to be like relatable to like two or three people. But, but if you could lead with more vulnerability and, and even weakness, I think that would end up really helping a lot more people to be able to meet them where they're at and, and bring them to where it is that they need to go. And I remember like, you know, thinking, okay, well, let me fake it. Let me just, you know, kind of try to be... And, and, and then, then I felt like, okay, now I'm trying to be open about things that are, I'm struggling with. And, and the whole time I'm thinking like, oh, I'm just being a whiner right now. I'm a complainer right now. Like, ah, oh, this, is, this is so painful. Uh, but, but, but I realized, like, you know, I'm, I'm hearing these things through, through my own filter. But I, I've got to really trust that the, the guidance that the brothers are giving me are, is actually quite helpful. And, uh, and, and to you know, kind of persist in letting people know you know, the, the, the soft underbelly that is my life and, and all of the ways that I've, my goodness, got miles to go to even be a, a, a thoughtful husband and to be engaged the way that I need to with the kids and to be a brother that is, that is not just really adept, I mean really adept at locker room fellowship, but at deep and, and meaningful fellowship 
of really talking about the the vulnerability of of fears and pains and even dreams. You know, sometimes it's very difficult to be vulnerable and share your dreams uh, because you're afraid that oh, I'll sound silly when I do those things. But amen. I'm 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 excited to to get after that and. Uh, and to kind of let myself be who I'm supposed to be uh, in order to kind of grow and, and not just feel like, okay, th this is it. And, but, but I think for, for all of us, as you think through, man, what, what is it perhaps that has been something that has come to your attention? And are you meeting it with pride or are you meeting it with humility? You know, Apollos, George, you know, they, they met these things with humility and the breakthroughs that occurred are phenomenal. Uh, for me, I'm at a crossroads. What am I going to do? Am I going to meet these encouragements and challenges with pride or humility? I'm, I'm, pray for me that I'll, that I'll meet them with humility uh, and that I can grow rather than stagnate or, or isolate. Uh, but, but I think for, for yourself as well, know that, that there are people that love you that have probably been trying to disrupt or intervene in some different ways. What, what is it that you need to hear that Apollos heard from a Priscilla and Aquila? Uh, that a George heard from a Bill Throne and an Ed, Ed Anton. Well, what is it that you need to, to hear uh, and, and to embrace so that absolute amazing breakthroughs can, can really be the reality of your life? A great passage, a zeal of, a, of, a, of an unlikely couple and the humility of an all-star seeker. But we've got one doctrinal point that I want to uh, launch into for a moment here uh, because... It is in view. He only knew John's baptism. And this ends up being a very difficult point of being not proud and being objective and allowing the scriptures to speak. Uh, because many people, when you want to talk about doctrine, just get defensive right away. And they want to debate uh, rather than really listen to, to understand, rather than wait their turn to then share their debating point. And this was a, a difficult one for a lot of people to really look at this doctrine of baptism. You know, we've got John's baptism in view here. We'll have Jesus and the Holy Spirit as it relates to baptism in view in the next couple of verses in chapter 19. Uh, I, I know for me, um, I, I had a bit of a, a blank slate. I didn't really have a view of baptism when I began studying the Bible. I, I just kind of faked my way through church, so none of it really mattered so much at the, at the time. But for some people who are rather invested, it's a very difficult thing when, when you've kind of held to a view to, in some way, have that apple cart turned over by what is the clarity of Scripture. Now, what's interesting is they're in Ephesus here, and both in 18 and 19, everything that's going on here with this uh, new learning about baptism, about the Holy Spirit, all this new learning is occurring in Ephesus. Now, the one gospel that was written in Ephesus that talks about Jesus's baptism or the baptism uh, initiated by Jesus was written by John. John was in Ephesus from the maybe the later 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, he was in exile and he came back to Ex Exodus, I, I'm sorry, to Ephesus again uh, in 95. And it may be that there was so much confusion attending baptism that in his gospel, uh, he's the one that seems to draw a clearer boundary between John's baptism and Jesus's baptism and brings some very clear teaching first in Ephesus and then in a gospel that is meant to help everybody understand all over the world. So let's let's take a look 
at this teaching that Apollos would have learned uh, from Priscilla and Aquila, uh, but this teaching that would later be written down, not, not for another, by the way, 40 years, maybe would it be written down in John's gospel. Uh, we're, we're currently around 52 AD when this is going on. Uh, his gospel will be written a, a good bit later. But look, look with me back in John chapter 3. And, and there the Bible re reads, um, verse 3, Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And that's a big deal, right? You cannot enter, cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Well, what does that mean? It's confusing to this scholar, Israel's teacher, Nicodemus. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. So that's a very particular phrase that he uses there. Many have then debated, is Jesus talking about baptism or not here? For a lot of people argue, no, 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 this is, this is not about that. It can't be about that because if it's about baptism, then what he's saying is you can't enter heaven. You can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're baptized. And certainly that can't be some sort of prerequisite. What if you're an airplane? What if, what if, what if, right? There's a, a million different exceptions that suddenly come into play. But here's an interesting thing just looking at the passage itself. Oftentimes a Jew like Jesus in teaching will use the technique of parallelism. And that parallelism is, I mean, over the top, unmistakable in what he just said. Look at verse 3. Jesus replied, very truly, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Or the, the word again is also the word that means from above. Anathen is the word. And then look at when Nicodemus is like, uh, humana, humana, humana. What do you mean? What do you mean? Born again. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Look at the parallels. Jesus replied, Jesus answered, truly I tell you, truly I tell you, no one can see, no one can enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, unless they are born, unless they are born. You don't get better parallelism than that in all the scriptures. Nowhere in Psalms that uses it quite generously, nowhere in Proverbs. You get better parallelism than we've got right here. This is the ultimate example. And so... What does it mean to be born again? Well, to be born again means to be born of water and spirit. Now, there's something else that needs to be kind of settled in this idea is in being born of water and spirit. What does that mean? You know, some people say, well, first it means you're born as a baby and then you're born spiritually. Now, here's what's interesting about that. The phrase being born of water never in the history of Greek language or any language, but never in the history of Greek language, ever meant to be born naturally or to be born as a baby. Has never been used, and nor is it used today. Right? Yes, today we might say their water broke, but, but that's the closest that we ever get to that. So it has never meant that ever. Also, are there two events or one event in view there? Now, this is also rather interesting. This phrase, a preposition of, with the two nouns, water and spirit, is so tightly constructed and is often used by scholars as the most classic example of a preposition governing two things in such a strong way that it can only be one thing. 
Here's, I'll bore you for two seconds here. Murray J. Harris is the, by far, the, the kind of the most insightful guy on Greek prepositions. And he uses it to show this is the tightest construction that we have to show only one event in view here. So to argue that, oh, what Jesus is saying is first you need to be born as a baby, then you need to be reborn from above by the Holy Spirit in something that has nothing to do with water, well, that, that would be just an absurd idea. Because and, and if you're claiming that you know the Greek and you're saying that, well, then you're being intellectually dishonest because it couldn't be clearer in that language. And by the way, one last thing. If you wanted to say, first you need to be born as a baby and then you need to be spiritually reborn by the Holy Spirit, well, there was a phrase that you could use in Greek. And that phrase is used by John in his gospel just a little while earlier. And the phrase is, be born of bloods. And, and that's the way that he uses in John 1 when he talks about, I'm not talking about being born of natural descent, not being born of a father. When he uses that, if you look in your footnotes, you'll realize that the uh, literal rendering of what he says is, I'm not talking about being born of bloods. I'm not talking about being born of a father. So if he wanted to say that, he would have used the phrase that actually meant that. But he doesn't use that phrase. He uses the phrase of being born of water and spirit. And from here... The, the rest of, of what we then read throughout chapters 3 and 4 are of Jesus going and baptizing, by the way. But, you know, there's all these arguments that go back and forth. And we realize, yes, being born again does mean to be born of water and spirit. Does that, does that then mean that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're baptized? Unless they're born of water and spirit? That makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Anything that is somewhat exclusive always kind of makes people want to throw off any of the constraints or restraints and, and argue against it in some way or another. But maybe it's an addition, it's an augmentation of grace. The fact that it's so clear, rather than you having to come up with a new idea, like come forward, have an altar call, or say this prayer, or there, there's a lot of different ways that people kind of have ingenuity or inventiveness around here's how you get reconciled to God. But are we meant to? Or are we meant to just take great security in the clarity that we've got here. This is a clip from Woody Allen. pontificates, well, I know this. Wouldn't it be nice, maybe if Marshall McLuhan, the, the director, could come out right now, or if John could come out right now and say, John, what did you mean by that? But we do have something close to that. We have disciples of John that wrote quite a bit, and disciples of disciples of John who wrote quite a bit. All of them spoke Greek. All of them that wrote were martyred for their faith, so they weren't just kind of, you know, Sunday-only Christians. I mean, th these were like radical, involved leaders of the church that spoke volumes. And the number one verse that they referenced about baptism was John 3, 5. And, and just to conclude, 
For example, Justin Martyr, I'll just read through these as we close out. He wrote in 160, uh, he says, They are brought by us, the seekers are, where there is water, and are regenerated, that is, reborn, in the same manner in which we were reborn ourselves. They there receive the washing with water in the name of God, the Father, the Lord of the universe, of our Savior Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Christ also said, Unless you are born again, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Wouldn't it be nice to just bring that person out for, from behind? But hey, we've got a lot of other people who spoke that language, hung out with John, and, and have great insight into this. Irenaeus, who was discipled by Polycarp, who was discipled by John, uh, and he, he writes that clearly, says, We are made clean from our old transgressions by means of the sacred water and calling of the Lord. We are spiritually regenerated as newborn babes, just as the Lord has declared. Unless a man is born again through water and spirit, he will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Tertullian, 195. Unless a man has been born again of water and spirit, he will not enter into the kingdom of the heavens. These words have tied faith to the necessity of baptism. He also goes on to write to show that even back then people wanted to be contentious. He says, now the teaching is laid down that without baptism, salvation is attainable by no one. This is based primarily on the ground that the declaration of the Lord who says, unless one is born of water, he has not life. However, when this is laid down, there immediately arise scrupulous or rather audacious doubts on the part of some. Interesting, right? So... Let me just leave this with the one aspect here. There is a clarity in the scripture if you're willing to be humble and accept it. There is an astounding clarity in the way that the book of Acts describes baptism. It begins with Peter saying in Pentecost, repent every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's no different than what Jesus is saying here. You're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born of water and spirit. But to say that you cannot enter heaven without being baptized, does that then tie salvation to a work? Now, here's the, the, the part that is a, a leap for those trying to make that argument. They're trying to say that baptism's a work. There's no scripture in all the Bible that ever says baptism is a work. As a matter of fact, there are three that specifically say that it is not a work. Clearly not a work in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, Titus 3, 3 through 5, as well as right here where it says that it is from above. This event is from above, not from man in uh, John 3, 3 and 3, 5. It would be like saying, here, I'm giving you this gift, right? Here's your going away gift, John. But you know what? You can't have that gift unless you unwrap it. You can't get to the gift unless you unwrap it. You need to receive this gift in the way that I want to give it to you. So who are we to say, oh, well, I unwrapped the gift. That was my work. And by doing so, I've earned this gift. And it's based on my merit and not on your beneficence that I have this gift. No, no. Who, who would ever think something like that? And so to say that baptism's a work is as absurd as saying your kids don't need to say thank you to you on Christmas morning because they did the work of unwrapping the gifts. The wrapping is just a way to make it more special. The wrapping is just a way to make it more secure and certain that this thing is a gift. And, and for, for all of us to, to just revel in the fact that God makes it that much more certain, that much more secure for us to walk in this newness of life, of regeneration, and to never doubt. So anyway, to close out, here's the charge. Going back to Aquila and Priscilla and going back to our friend Apollos. 
Invite someone into your home this week. Or coffee shop if your house is a mess. Invite someone into your home. Why? To explain the way of God more adequately. Let's not let this amazing passage go by without us embracing the, the the great call of the significance that is our lives and a remembrance of the grace that saved us and the gift that is ours. Amen. Thank you.